0: As an old man, Jacob stood before Pharaoh, the great ruler of Egypt. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac. He was the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. And when Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? Jacob replied, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult. Here was a man on whom God had fixed his love even before he was born. He was a blessed man yet Jacob says, my years have been few and difficult. Then this apparently sad old man did something really bold. He put his hands on Pharaoh, this great king, and blessed him. This poor old man, a refugee from famine, gives Pharaoh God's blessing. This fall I'm preaching a series from The Life of Jacob. I'm calling it A Disciple's Life, The Blessing and the Limp. A Disciple's Life, The Blessing and the Limp, subtitled Lessons from Jacob's Journey with God. Why Jacob? Well, at first I thought about preaching on Jacob just because I never had, and he is so interesting. He is especially interesting to me for two reasons. First, because he spent a good part of his adult life limping, as he walked with God. I can relate to that. And second, he is a man who often took matters into his own hands to make things happen that God had promised to make happen. And sadly, I can relate to that too. But then I found myself asking a more important question. Why does our church need to think about this man, Jacob? How would his story help us to be better disciples of Jesus Christ? Jacob's life is all about the blessing of God upon him. Yet his life is a mess most of the time. He doesn't seem to know what to do with the blessing he has received. He struggles with God his whole life, and he ends up limping as a result. Yet God struggles with him even more greatly, from the beginning to the end of Jacob's life. Jacob perseveres with God because a sovereign God perseveres with him. And because of that, Jacob ends up passing on the blessing as he comes to his own death. It's a great picture of discipleship, and especially of the work of God, through all the ups and downs of a disciple's broken, blessed life. Over the course of our lifetime, we learn to walk with God. But it's not easy. I'm breaking in a new pair of leg braces that my post-polio doctor prescribed for me this summer, to help prevent falls as my legs are weakening. I have to say I don't like it one bit. I want to walk the way I want to walk. But when I do, I'm prone to falling. So, I'm in the process of humbling myself, having to learn to walk in a new way, as these braces require me to use some of my leg muscles a bit differently. It's weird, and, and it's, it's interesting timing, with this Jacob series about a disciple's life. So I'm asking God this fall, Lord, help me walk anew with you. Lord, help me walk anew with you, both physically and spiritually. Would you please be praying that for me this fall? Lord, help Pastor John to walk anew with you. And if you want in on that for yourself, just pray, Lord, help Pastor John to walk anew with you and me too. Back to Jacob. Excuse me. The reputation Jacob has with most of us is that he is slick, shifty, deceptive, hard-edged, manipulative, always angling for something, a con artist, the patriarch from the wrong side of town. But I've come to think that's a cardboard cutout of the real man. As I've been looking at the texts in Genesis about his life, I'm coming to believe that Jacob is the Bible's number one everyman. In other words, he is me, he is you. As a man blessed by God, yet struggling with him, Jacob bears an uncanny resemblance to me and to most other believers I know. My years have been few and difficult, he said. Who doesn't know that feeling? Who would have imagined that the God-blessed life could be so hard and leave us limping? I thought about the people who've come to see me over the years. No names. They tell me of marriages that are a terrible disappointment. Some have put up with cruel blows of bad health. For others, it's joblessness, no matter how hard they tried to find work. Sometimes the problem is a job that's sucking the very life out of you, or a school you don't want to go to because you get bored or bullied there. There are kids who break their parents' hearts and parents who break their kids' spirits. There are loves that are lost seasons of helplessness. There's the pressure you feel as a teenager or a young adult or an old head, pressure from within yourself and all around you, pressure to be perfect, to succeed, to be good at everything, to always get it right, to have to do it all, and never to admit weakness, never to admit failure. Oh no. All of this makes life very hard. And the sense I get, what is often unspoken, but felt deeply by many of us is this is not the way it's supposed to be when God promises to bless your life. But in point of fact, I think it's safe to say that to know God is to struggle with God. To know God is to struggle with God. Because he is holy and I am sinful. How could there not be a struggle? When Jacob said, my years have been few and difficult, He could be speaking for a lot of God's people. In some ways, God himself made Jacob's life more difficult. But in other ways, mostly by taking things into his own hands, Jacob made his life with God more difficult. And that's why we're going to study Jacob's story in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. I invite you to be thinking today and throughout this sermon series How do I tend to take matters into my own hands instead of trusting God? I also want to remind you of our church's vision. You see it on the front of your bulletin every Sunday. To be a thriving family in the city where the broken from all nations are made alive and whole, finding hope and purpose in Jesus. We see this Movement of discipleship and blessing and transformation in Jacob's life. The broken being made whole. This runs through his life and then on out to the nations in God's long-range plan to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and it's being applied to us today, right here, right now, at New Life Church. A Disciple's Life, the Blessing and the Limp. Kids... Today we're going to talk about the birth of twin brothers Jacob and Esau. I want you to draw what you think those two boys looked like when they were born, okay? So we start our series with a question, and it's the title of the message today. Will you have the struggle or the stew? Will you have the struggle or the stew? The first thing I want to say as you consider that question is this. The life God blesses may not be the life you would choose. The life God blesses may not be the life you would choose. This is very important, because we live in a time and a place where the Christian life is regarded as customizable. In other words, I can make the life of a disciple fit me, says the Christian today. But I don't hear Jesus saying that. This deception is crippling the church in America today, including our own church. Jesus does not say, fit me into your life any way you like, as best you can. No, he says, follow me. Let me fit you into the Father's plan. Take me as Lord, or go your own way. That's why I believe this sermon series is so crucial. In Genesis chapter 12, God made an astonishing promise that he would bless Abraham and make a great nation from him, that all nations on earth will be blessed through you. That is the great God promise that drives the book of Genesis. And the tension in Genesis is what the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will do when that promise is threatened or delayed or seems impossible. Will they trust God, or will they take matters into their own hands? They do some crazy things, as we will see, but so do we. Look at verses 19 through 21 of Genesis chapter 25. Verse 19, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. Rebekah was childless for 20 years of marriage, even though God had promised Isaac and Rebekah that a great nation would come from them. But even so, there were, as one commentator puts it, a lot of anniversaries without a baby. The same thing had happened to Rebekah's in-laws, Abraham and Sarah. But where they had done all kinds of crazy things to have the child God promised, Isaac simply prayed. I'm sure he prayed long and hard and often, but he prayed, he waited, and he trusted God. Imagine the joy after 20 years of marriage when God answered his prayer, and Rebecca became pregnant, but then trouble. Look at verse 22. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? so she went to inquire of the Lord. Rebecca didn't know she was carrying twins. Other mothers would talk about how they could feel their babies kicking, but for Rebecca, it was like a scrimmage being held in her belly. It wasn't just uncomfortable, it was terrifying. Her words are a bit hard to translate. Why is this happening to me? Could also be something like, I can't live like this, or I can't go on this way. She's finally pregnant but her pregnancy turns out to be unbearable to rebecca's credit like isaac she follows her husband's lead and she inquires of the lord in her distress in verse 23 the lord explains what is going on the lord said to her two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated one people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger This verse is an oracle, a prophecy that shapes all that will follow in the book of Genesis. If this verse were omitted from our Bibles, what follows would not make sense. And the real kicker in this declaration from the Lord is the last line of verse 23, and the older will serve the younger. That's not how life is supposed to work. In ancient culture, indeed in most cultures, the firstborn is special. The firstborn is next in line to be the head of the family after the father. I'm sure that when Rebecca heard this word from the Lord, she winced. She probably thought, oh great, that's really going to complicate things. It wasn't a happy prospect. Then when you read verses 24 through 26, verses that speak of the birth of the twins, Esau and Jacob, you can't help but go, "Ew." Ew. Verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Imagine this, you who are mothers, you look up from your hard labor, and you see that your firstborn is red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. Can you say, "ew"? (laughs) I mean, most mothers would not say that out loud, but you might be thinking to yourself, "ew." That's Esau, the first boy. Now, kids, what did you draw for what Esau would look like? Well, Bible scholars think Esau looked something like this. There he is. Hello, Elmo. Red and his whole body like a hairy garment. That's Elmo. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that. The second boy, as he's coming out, has a firm grip on the heel of the first, like a crab's claw, and he's bawling his lungs out that he didn't get to go first. Jacob's name sounds like the Hebrew word for heel, because he was a heel grabber. So, when his family called Jacob's name for supper, they were calling for the heel grabber, the one who would walk behind his brother and step on his heel to make him trip. Jacob is the tripper-upper. He's the brother who will do whatever it takes to get in front and take the lead. So, the feuding brothers have been born, heel boy and hair boy. What a pair. About this time, I wonder if Rebecca was thinking, if this is the blessed life, I'll take a little less blessing, please. (laughs) That's the takeaway for us. The life God blesses may not be the life you would choose. Like Isaac and Rebecca, God has brought Christians into the blessed family of God through our faith in Jesus. You are descendants of Abraham because like Abraham you believed God and it was credited to you as righteousness. If you know nothing else about Abraham, know that the Bible repeats this one thing four times. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You have inherited the blessed life. Righteousness has been credited to your account. Because you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, to save you and cover you with his righteousness, and God has brought you into his blessed family. But when we determine to live by God's promise instead of by what we see, life takes on a precarious feeling. The unsettling thing we have to face is this. God himself makes it precarious. In our text, God arranges Rebecca's inability to have children, and then he ordains the sibling rivalry of her twin sons. I find that very unsettling. We can only assume, then, that God might be the one who pulled the plug on that job, the one who brought that lingering illness, the one who allowed the heartbreak in that relationship or that failure at school. Also, that we cannot see how his blessing will possibly come to us now. And therefore, we will have to live by faith that this is indeed the life blesses, this life we actually have. It's in the struggle that we learn to treasure God and his promises, to keep walking toward the glorious city we cannot yet see, to believe that if God is all we have, we actually have it all. Do you believe that? And this is the second thing, the second big thing I'd like to say, as you're deciding whether to have the struggle or the stew. It's worth the struggle to treasure the life God blesses. It's worth the struggle to treasure the life God blesses. Verse 27 tells us more about the nature of these two sons. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. We learn that Esau's life song could have been Home on the Range. You know how it goes. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope play. That's where Esau wanted to be, but not Jacob. Jacob liked civilization. He liked to stay in the tents, in the camp. The description of Jacob as a content homebody gives the sense of a man who is pleasant, likable, who goes along to get along, even while he quietly makes his plans to get ahead. In verse 28, the plot thickens. Isaac, who had a, t- a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The writer doesn't paint a very complimentary picture here, It looks like the way to Isaac's heart was through his stomach, and Esau was the hunter in the family. So the writer is essentially saying Isaac loved Esau because he put fresh meat in his mouth. And since Rebekah loved Jacob, no reason is given, Isaac and Rebekah's fairy tale romance took a dark turn for the worse here, as they played favorites with their twin boys. Consider what happens in verse 29 and following to the end of our text. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he is also called Edom, which means red. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau comes in from hunting all day in the open country, and he has a raging hunger. Jacob, who is making some stew, remember he's the homebody, Jacob sees an opportunity. Jacob will give his brother some food if Esau will give him the birthrights of the firstborn in return. In ancient culture, the birthright was a package of legal privileges that belonged to Esau as the firstborn. For example, he would get a double portion of the estate when his father died. But remember that what was really important in this family was something God had given them two generations earlier, like a holy heirloom, a family treasure to be passed down. Imagine that in my family we have a valuable heirloom. We don't. (laughs) I wish we did. But let's say we do. And let's say it's a Stradivarius violin that my great-great-great-grandfather played back in Sweden. When both my parents are gone, who gets the Stradivarius? Me? I hope it's me. I want it to be, you know, not one of my siblings. Well, it's not me. It would be my brother Dave, because he's the firstborn, and I'm the second. But I want that Stradivarius. Can I figure out a way to make it mine somehow? Isaac's family had something far more valuable than a Stradivarius, They had the promise that God would make a great nation from the seed of Abraham. That blessing had been passed down from Abraham to Isaac, and now Esau stood next in line to be the carrier of God's blessing for the whole world. That is what Esau sold for a bowl of stew. Now we're inclined to focus on Jacob here. What a jerk to con his poor, starving brother. Jacob was sly, no doubt about it. We see here the first hints of Jacob's bent to be a deceiver and a manipulator. But in this story, the camera is squarely focused on Esau. We know this because of the last line of our text. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau is saying to Jacob, all I care about is eating. I couldn't care less about some old birthright. What good is that to a hungry man like me? And when Esau gulped down what turned out to be a very pricey bowl of stew, the text implies that he never gave it a second thought. He ate and drank and then got up and left. Bada-bing, bada-boom, time for a nap. Hebrews 12, verse 16 says, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Esau's failure was not that he was hungry or impetuous. It was that he was godless. That doesn't mean he didn't believe in God. It means that God didn't matter to him. God didn't matter to him. Having God's blessing on his life was not worth the price of a single meal He just didn't care. Here's the takeaway for us. Okay, the life God blesses may not be the life you would choose. It's hard, it's full of struggle, but it's worth the struggle to treasure the life God blesses. In your life, will you have the blessed struggle with God, or will you have the tasty temporary stew? Jacob, for all his conniving, saw what mattered most in life. He understood, at some level, how valuable God's blessing was. His chief failure was taking matters into his own hands, rather than trusting in God's promise. But again, our focus here is primarily on Esau. Beware of the tendency in all of us to be Esau, to value only what satisfies you now, in the moment. It wasn't that Esau didn't want his birthright. It was that he wanted Jacob's stew more. He despised his birthright by putting a garage sale price tag on it. A bowl of stew? Really? God just did not matter to him. He was godless. The New Testament calls this tendency in all of us the flesh or the old man. Our fallen, sinful, broken human nature drives us toward satisfying ourselves at any cost. We suffer from the overwhelming bent to care nothing about what God says is valuable. We want what we want, and we want it now. We believe in God. We just don't care about what He wants. Can you see this at work in your own life? To live that way, whether you're a child, a teenager, a young adult, or an old head, is to be godless, like Esau. But my friends, listen. These are the very things Jesus came to save us from. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Let's be honest. God often doesn't matter all that much to us when push comes to shove. So we trade for something better, like Esau, when we want what we want. We trust ourselves more than we trust God, so we take matters into our own hands, like Jacob, to be sure things go the way we want or think they should. But then comes Jesus. Then comes Jesus. He says, I delight to do your will, Father. I do nothing but what the Father tells me to do. Father, not my will, but your will be done. In his darkest moments, the night before going to the cross, the Father is everything to Jesus. There is in him a sweet surrender that brings a strong freedom in the deepest struggle. And this can change absolutely everything for you if you take Jesus as your Savior and follow him as the Lord of your life. When we trust in Jesus, God implants his own spirit within us to bring us the very life and salvation of Jesus, Christ in us. Christ in us is what is able to counter those selfish, here and now, what I want, desires of our flesh. We can then begin to live by the nudging of the Holy Spirit within us living for values that are the exact opposite of the world's, living for what we cannot see, even at the cost of suffering. All of this requires faith, of course. And this life of faith is precarious. It's a struggle, often complicated by God himself. And then there's the devil. Satan constantly puts some immediate pleasure before us, some savory stew, and asks us to choose between obedience to God and the quick fix. Again and again, Satan will whisper to you, What's it worth to you? Life with God, what's it really worth to you? What does it really matter? The good news is that God will turn that temptation into a faith builder for us as we walk with him and struggle with him. Is there anything you would take over your Christian birthright? Be honest with yourself. Don't say what you know you're supposed to say. Would you give up the Lord if all your money troubles could be over? Would you sell your Christian identity to get your health back? Have you wanted that boyfriend or that girlfriend so much that you would do anything to get and keep that relationship? Have you looked at your marriage and said, I can either be happy or I can obey God and I'd rather be happy? Do you find yourself thinking, what good is it being a Christian if I have to live like this? Do you find yourself itching to take matters into your own hands instead of trusting and treasuring Jesus Christ as Lord? I once read about a military chaplain who took his family to see the Easter festivities held at a great cathedral in Manila, in the Philippines. There was a huge open square where vendors were selling all kinds of religious merchandise. Candles, incense, veils, rosaries, prayer books, jewelry, relics. They soon came face to face with a man standing in the street selling crosses. Both of his hands were filled with his wares, with little crosses. And from his neck hung a hand-lettered sign that read, Cheap crosses for sale. Cheap crosses for sale. Esau would have bought one of those cheap crosses. What about you? May the way of Esau not be the way you choose to go. The way of the easy, quick fix, what I want, no struggle life. The God-blessed life may not go the way you would choose, but do not sell out. It's worth the struggle. Vale la pena. It's worth the struggle. What to do instead? Pray? Inquire of the Lord? I love that phrase. Inquire of the Lord. Don't just talk with yourself about it or others. Inquire of the Lord. Wait upon him. Learn to treasure Jesus above everything else in your life, and trust him. Trust him. His mercy endures forever. You know that tasty stew you're thinking about? It has a shelf life. It won't keep. But the love, the forgiveness, and the grace of Jesus Christ will last forever. It will keep, and it will keep you. Friends, will you have the struggle or the stew? Amen? Amen.